This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, how's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an ag recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in ag tech or agribusiness, I'd sure love to hear from you. Just drop me an email, tim at aggrad.com. This show is part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if ag podcasts like this one are your thing or vlogs or blogs, uh, head over to farmruralag.com and make sure you check that out. Today's episode is all about the cannabis industry, specifically looking at the kind of what's happened in the cannabis industry in the U.S. And you're going to get an interesting take on what it's like to develop and sell inputs into this budding industry, to use a nice little pun there that just kind of came out by mistake. Man, I'm kind of proud of that one. I hope it makes it in. Just to start off, I thought it'd be interesting to share some facts with you. So the marijuana industry, at least the, the legal marijuana industry, is posting about $52 billion in sales. Uh, it's legal now in 10 U.S. states for recreational use and 33 for medicinal use. It's just grown like crazy in recent years uh, since some of these states started legalizing it. Interestingly enough, the cannabis industry employs employs five times as many Americans as the coal industry. Investors poured about $10 billion into it in 2018, and legal marijuana sales topped that of all organic produce combined. So we're not talking about a small little niche industry here. This is a very large business and one that is growing extremely quickly, uh, especially as more states start to legalize it for recreational use. So uh, I think there's a lot to talk about here when it comes to the future of agriculture. And I brought someone on who I think has a very unique perspective. His name is Colin Bell. He is the co-founder and chief growth officer of Grosentia, which is a company that specializes in microbial plant biostimulants. And they have launched a line specifically geared towards the cannabis industry called Mammoth Microbes. Uh, I'm going to give him a chance to introduce himself to you. It's very impressive. He's a he's a uh, PhD, uh, was working at Colorado State, wanted to start this business for plant biostimulants and, and kind of the timing was right for, for this marijuana industry. So very interesting stuff. He's going to start off by just sharing more about his background, and we'll launch right into it. Here's my interview about what's going on in this cannabis market and what it's like to sell inputs to it with Dr. Colin Bell of Grosentia and Mammoth Microbes. I am the co-founder and chief growth officer for a company Grosentia, also known as Mammoth Microbes, especially in the cannabis industry. Uh, for my background, I have a PhD in soil microbiology. My academic speciality is focused on understanding plant microbe interactions in both natural and agriculture settings. I was very successful as a research scientist at the Forest Service for a small stint at the USDA Agriculture Research Services for a little bit. I ended up landing where I really wanted to land at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I wanted to be there because all my academic heroes were actually housed there. And uh, I wanted to be around greatness so I could just continue to surround myself with people that were way smarter than me and I could learn and grow and it served me very well. Our team was very successful at Colorado State University. We published numerous dozens of papers focused on different aspects of soil microbial ecology, plant microbe interactions, et cetera. 
and we uh, received a lot of grant money, uh, submitted a lot of grants, worked very hard, and so we did everything we were supposed to do to be successful scientists. And that's kind of where this whole venture uh, with Mammoth Microbes started. At one point around 2013, our team, who was always driven to make as big of an impact as possible, started reflecting on our impact. And it came down to, I was working on a grant, you know, back late November, 2013, I think it was midnight towards the end of the month. And I read this impact statement and this impact statement is something that you have to basically copy and paste. Unfortunately, into every one of your grants, you don't really put a lot of thought into it from one grant to the next as a, as an academic, it's just one of those mandatory paragraphs you have to fit into all federal research. And I read that one and I hadn't read it a lot that year. I knew it very well, but I reflected on it when I read it that evening and it was talking about how we were going to take our, microbial expertise and ultimately develop technologies that would bring value to farmers, you know, and innovate agriculture through natural microbial solutions, you know, to enhance potentially quality of crop, yield of crop, soil health, et cetera. And I kind of chuckled when I read, and again, it was a very long year. We worked very hard. Maybe I was a little delirious, but I was kind of chuckling to myself there uh, working on that grant at night because I just realized at that point I had an aha moment. I was like, you know, we don't really do that. You know, what we do do is academic stuff very well. We publish papers, and those are metrics for success. We get grant money, and those are metrics for success. But are we actually engaging in farmers and actually developing technologies that were getting in the hands of farmers to bring them value? And the answer was no, we didn't even have a clue how to do that. We'd never engaged farmers. We didn't even know about farmers' pain points. And I brought this to the attention of one of my, one of my partners at the university that next day, and he kind of chuckled, Matt Wallenstein, and he's still at the university. And we kind of thought that maybe we could make a difference. That moment acted as a catalyst to allow us to think that maybe we could do better. And so we immediately started working on grants uh, that would allow us to apply our science. And so we, we ended up writing and getting a grant later that year. And it was in very, a very fast order, quite frankly, that allowed us to flip our lab from a fundamental or basic science lab to an applied science lab and start looking at problems in agriculture and developing solutions that we could, by definition, get in the hands of farmers to bring them value. And that's where it all started. And so, you know, that was very early 2014. And we started the research and development, early, early stage research and development efforts for the base technology that we have in the market today. Mammoth Microbes or Mammoth P was our product. What's been the hardest part for you in the transition from academia to startup world? Man, a lot of things. First of all, nothing's easy. Just absolutely nothing's easy. We le I left the university in March 2015 with a little seed funding, no facility, you know, no equipment, no nothing. My team was like, okay, here's your really your basic job. You have to scale up commercialization, scale up production, get a small team on the ground and go to market. You know, we had a very limited time and a, a limited amount of money to do so. And so all that it's extremely difficult, you know, quite frankly, that's a lot to do in a short period of time with limited capital. And just that learning curve of, you know, I was a very successful research scientist and I was with people uh, that were driven and professional 
and then engaging in building a team out uh, as an early stage team where I was just finding Craigslist, you know, young people on Craigslist, teaching them about bioproduction, teaching them about sales, teaching them about social media, all these things, which I wasn't an expert by the way either. You know, I was kind of winging everything. I'm a smart guy. And generally I could do a lot of things pretty well. And so we were getting by, but scaling up a company, even for experts is very difficult. And so there's just a huge learning curve, endless hours. And what I realized is just everything's hard and some things just seem impossible. But I learned a really valuable lesson through this and I still remind myself about it daily. It's just like, you know, honestly, I think we can get through anything if we keep pushing. Hmm. You know, there's something called grit that's uh, kind of associated with successful startup co-founders. That means that no matter what, you got to keep going. And in a lot of ways, success is just the mental state. And it's a choice we make. If you can stay in that state of mind, you can push through. And, And that's not necessarily an easy lesson because you're working incredibly long hours. And now you're dealing with all these people from all these different backgrounds and you're young people and they're older people and you're training them to do things and, and then you're trying to get out and sell your products. So you're trying to engage in a market and just so many things. I think it's just overwhelming the amount of activities you have to be very good at to be successful. Well, you pursued the the field of study of plant microbe interactions long before it was cool, but now but now it is kind of cool. And so, how does a how does a startup company with a microbial solution differentiate oneself uh, when it does seem to be a lot more of that on the market nowadays? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I always tell, and I have a business partner that I engage with often. Obviously, we have a big team now. Just so you know, we have over sixty people in our company right now. And we've been in, I've left the university just a little over four years ago and we're selling our product all over the world. So we've grown incredibly, in a, incredibly fast, I would say in a, in a short period of time. And I, I keep on saying this, is like, I'm gonna make microbiology cool before this is all said and done. And it is pretty cool. You know, I've always thought it was cool. So it's nothing new to me. In the cannabis industry that we engage in, we were relatively new. We were definitely some of the first PhD uh, scientists that I know engaged in this industry, and we owned it. You know, it was about bringing science and credibility to the input space in this industry. And so we distinguished ourselves very easily. We came across, you know, again, entering the market in August, 2015, we had our first sale in Colorado, but we did a lot of discovery where I was in the stores, in the, you know, there's garden shops or hydroponic stores, which are retail outlets like garden shops that you might find mom and pop garden shops all over the world. But there's these hydro shops or grow shops that actually cater to cannabis growers. There's about 1500 of them in the United States. And you can go and look at product placement. You can go and look at competitive uh, products on the market. And most of them were geared towards, I don't know, they didn't look super professional. There's a lot of tie dye and psychedelic colors. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to come in very clean, very professional, because that's just kind of who we were. And so we immediately identified some ways to distinguish ourselves, not, not only visually, by having a nice, clean, branded look, but also with data. You know, we had published data, we had patented technology that we used 
as a selling tool or a confidence tool to promote engagement and to promote adoption in the market. And we still do that today. And I think we lead our segment. As a matter of fact, I know we lead our segment based on a, a, a recent market analysis. Our brand Mammoth occupies about 18% of the space in our category in the cannabis industry. And that's happened in a short period of time. And that's a pretty big chunk. And so we've done something right for sure. Were you able to do some of the groundwork and research on this product uh, for the cannabis industry uh, before cannabis was legal? Or did you have to kind of wait until that happened? And then that was the turning point. That's a good question, too. And so we were in Colorado. It was legal. And that's one of the catalysts, actually, that got us going. We didn't intend to launch our technology necessarily into the candidate space, but we were engaging with a lot of people in discovery exercises and, and interviews and talking to just a wide range of people across different verticals in the agriculture space. And that question started coming up pretty quickly. Well, how does it work on cannabis is the question. And, you know, we'd say, well, quite frankly, we don't know. We're, we're trying to grow row crops and we're trying to grow specialty crops. And we're trying to feed the world naturally and sustainably. And after we got the question probably four different times from four different individuals, I kind of looked at my partners. So I was like, well, maybe we should engage and just understand this space a little more. It keeps on cropping up. And we are scientists and we're data and discovery driven. So I spent two weeks now from that point on, and this is early on again, understanding the space and engaging with growers, which was pretty easy to do back then, especially in Colorado. And we started actually engaging growers with product too and, and seeing if we could get some data from them, if they'd be willing to try uh, our solutions on their crops. And we were able to get data. I also wanted to validate the technology hands-on myself. And so I worked with a consultant here in Colorado who showed me how to set up a grow and gave me all the instructions and guided me so I wouldn't mess it up. And I was able to conduct very robust uh, experimental designs on cannabis repeatedly so I could see the results for myself. And so it was early stage third party and hands-on on the cannabis plant itself, different varieties that gave us confidence that it really worked. And with that data, it allowed us to form you know, some of the value propositions that we bring to the market, which allowed us to inform pricing based on value and inform some of the return on investments uh, based on the applications when growers use their technology. All right. Th this might be the most uncool sounding question I've ever asked on this podcast, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the data point on cannabis production? Is it ounces of buds harvested per year or what are we looking for here <laughs> it's ultimately quality and yield and i'll define that for you it's weight as far as yield just like any other crop and it's typically measured in grams or pounds you know and that could be a wide variety of, of answers depending on how big you're growing the plant and the growing techniques and there's a lot of different growing techniques but it's a weight it's a function of weight and if you think about weight, like early, early days when the gram was $20 a gram, think about that. I think there's 428 grams a pound. And so pounds could potentially be worth a lot of money and the prices have dropped significantly. And that would be like an end user dispensary price anyway. 
And so if you think about having all that money to work with, if you can increase yield by 16%, which is what it turns out the data on average kept on coming back for us, we can average, we can increase cannabis yield on average 16%. That return on investment based on those prices was, you know, around 40 to one based on some projections of what we might enter the market with as far as a pricing. And so that's really valuable to these cultivators. The second aspect of this is quality. And quality is measured uh, by regulation a couple different ways, but it comes down to these flavor profiles through terpenes and volatiles, smell, and cannabinoids, which is the medicinal properties of the plant. There's many different cannabinoids. The most common ones that are measured are THC and CBD, and sometimes there's others that are, that are getting added in. And then there's a group of terpenes that are typically measured now, which indicate different flavor and smell profiles. And, and those combined metrics represent quality. So if you can train cultivators to conduct a controlled side-by-side -side experiment, plant growth trial, where they don't have to change a thing and they just persist with their existing management practices, as the control group, and then they can do the same thing in a replicated side-by-side, -side, but adding our microbial product as an example of that one factor changing, and you can measure that difference in yield, and you can measure that difference in quality. We can quantify the value of those deltas or differences and you know, relay that back to the grower of the increased value that input is bringing them. And for quality, it seems like it's it's a wide range of potential data points, and they, they seem a little bit subjective. How are those evaluated, and, and are you able to get usable data that says, look, if you use Mammoth P, our product, our microbial product, you can improve your quality? Yeah, it's true, and that's what's brilliant about this particular crop, because those metrics are required to be measured by a third party for every harvest and so in order it, it allows us to get data at high resolution because the growers have to collect those metrics anyway and so it's something they're doing and we're just looking at those differences and it's it's a mass spec or you know liquid chromatography mass spec typically so it's pretty sophisticated measurements use controlled standards for the different terpenes using controlled standards for the different cannabinoids and it's getting measured across different groups and each state has a little different requirements so Washington state is an example you have to measure uh, that those data points within every 5 pounds of harvestable product so it's uh it's pretty reliable very cool. You, you mentioned earlier about prices have come down and I just have this sort of narrative in my head about uh, the, you know, legalizing cannabis so that there's this mix of growers that are maybe more, you know, the tie dye shirt type for lack of a better term versus those that are, you know, maybe venture backed and really trying to squeeze every penny of efficiency out of things. And, and, and I don't know if those two personas actually exist, but what is the persona of the cannabis grower today? Yeah, that's a great question. And there is variability. I think it spans across those two examples. And historically, there's second, third, fourth generation growers that have been doing this for a long time. And Northern California is a perfect example of that. And I think everyone really 
knows and associates the Humboldt County, Mendocino, Trinity as that Emerald Triangle where that's been happening for a long period of time. And then there's this other group where it is venture-backed, very sophisticated, indoor precision agriculture. And I think both categories are actually very sophisticated and knowledgeable. And everyone's actually picking up their education standards early on, even a couple of years ago, there was huge gaps in education, which is being bridged very quickly. And inherently it makes sense. It's been very hard for growers in this industry historically to get information, to get cultivation experience because they're growing a product that's basically on the black market. And so there's a lot of risk associated with exposure. Now that it's opened up, Sure, there has been some growing points. There has been some people that have actually gotten knocked out of the industry because of the lack of efficiencies. And those lack of efficiencies with very dynamic changes of supply-demand coming into play, oversupply, dropping, dropping costs, resulting in people forcing people actually to be more efficient. And it's, it's gotten as low where really people, when they were producing a pound for a thousand dollars and can still make a huge profit now really need to produce pounds at around three to five hundred dollars to be competitive and that requires education it requires understanding of how to grow in a large facility there's all sorts of environmental controls that you have to be an expert on there's workflow when you have a lot of employees that you have to be an expert on there's plant genetics that you have to have dialed in and optimized and be an expert on. There's inputs that you have to apply with confidence and precision that you have to be very good at. All these things that have applied to precision agriculture, to, to greenhouse management 101, to integrated pest management, now apply to these growers who are not educated in these practices. And that's resulted in a lot of successful teams bringing in the experience from other industries into this industry to help support their team. And that's happened quite a bit. So what are sort of the economics of, of growing cannabis? Are, I mean, you kind of think about it and you think, oh, wow, I know how expensive that stuff is, you know, on the consumer side. So they must just be making money hand over fist. Is that the case or are, you know, are they having to, to really up their game efficiency wise? I know you mentioned three to $500 per pound. Um, you know, what, what can a plant produce and how are the economics of the grower? Yeah, that's kind of all over the place. And so, you know, labor is inherently expensive, especially in the United States, energy is inherently expensive. And those are the two biggest costs. And so it depends on the management style. There are outdoor grows that grow use, obviously, the natural energy from the sun, which significantly reduces that particular cost. There are still a lot of land costs that you're associated. You're growing on some land that you're paying for, and there's a lot of labor costs associated with that. There's a lot of water costs because you're watering a lot. The input costs are not always significant. It's more of the labor and the energy. So you think about the grows here in, in Colorado as an example, mostly indoor grows. The benefit to that is you have environmental stability because you can control that environment and grow year-round. So you can get four or five crops a year, whereas an outdoor grower is only getting one crop. The trade-off 
is that boy, that energy is expensive, not only for lighting, but that heat builds up. And so now you have to have an HVAC system that's always running and filtering out the hot air and keep and maintaining a certain condition. That's very expensive. And then the labor again is an enormous cost. Workflow turns out to be critical. And a lot of growers have tried to scale their historically early days growing style to a larger scale. And that's not how you scale, that's just repeating or multiplying. Scale is understanding a different structure to optimize workflow, to optimize energy, to optimize airflow, all these things. And it's just elusive. It's very hard just to come up with the, with the best way to do it. And so, again, the people that are in the industry that are being successful in the indoor roads are bringing in expertise to help them understand these processes with precision. The trade-off is there's always trade-offs. The indoor flower typically doesn't get beat up by the weather as much, and so it looks nicer. And so there's a certain quality associated with the look. And so the outdoor growers, although they can grow much more with natural lighting, sunlight, the flower doesn't always appear to have the same. They call it bag appeal, but it's just the structure and the flower and the and the frostiness, there's a lot of trichomes, which are these glands that grow all over the final flower. That is a very appealing look for the end consumer. And the outdoor growers don't get that as much as the indoor growers. And so there's, there's trade-offs with, with any management practice that you choose. Let's talk microbes for a second in management practices. Uh, do, do, do the same microbes you could apply to an outdoor grow also apply to a hydroponic grow? I mean, uh, I would think, you know, some being in soil and some being in uh, water or solution, that would make a big difference, or does it? Yeah, I think it does for a lot of microbes. And you have to be mindful of the microbes you're using. And you have to ask the manufacturers of those microbes if they've been tested in those different environments. What we know about microbes is environment selects. And an example, a great example, is our technology Mammoth P. That was our hypothesis going in that we could create an environmental and functional trait selection platform. We could allow natural variability and directed selection to weed out microbes that didn't persist in certain environments while mimicking an environment that we hypothesized the microbes would experience in agriculture management. By doing so, you want to just weed out the microbes that aren't going to be efficacious. And efficacy is the word, and it's the biggest challenge, meaning do microbes work in different environments and different soil types and different management practices? That's probably the biggest single challenge that the biostimulant industry, which is the quickest growing segment, I think, across all crops using microbes in biology and agriculture, one of them for sure. That's what it, that's the biggest challenge it faces. And so it's an experiment. We hypothesize that we could probably select very robust, efficacious microbial consortia that would work well across a lot of different environments, but you still have to test it. And so it has to be data-driven. And so to really answer that question, you have to engage with the manufacturers of those different technologies and kind of demand the data. Make sure that they validate the technology so you don't have to. Is the only way to validate that technology to link between 
applications of uh, the microbes and yield. It, it seems like there's a big disconnect there between application and yield. Maybe there should be something that can more directly speak to how well uh, or how efficacious, I guess, the product is. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And we ask that often. As an academic at the university, you know, that's the last thing we measured. We wanted to measure all the little processes and idiosyncrasies of how the microbial communities, an example, shifted across the growing season and how it interacted with the plant using very sophisticated technologies and, and, and methods. And that was the questions of interest. But, you know, it's very interesting. And that's where this I-Corps program that I mentioned earlier, the Innovation Corps program, where you actually do evidence-based activities where you engage with customers and ask them what matters. I engage with hundreds of farmers, row crop farmers, specialty crop farmers, cannabis farmers, and the number one value proposition, and not only that, the number one, two, three, four, and five top value propositions was always yield because farmers get paid on yield. And so although I absolutely agree with you that there are a lot of details in those plant microbe interactions to understand exactly how that microbial community or microbial addition is responding across the growing season, how it's engaging with the plant. None of those matter if it's not resulting in added plant growth benefits. And so our team acknowledged our background and acknowledged the value propositions that we had to meet to be a compelling technology for, for farmers across many crops. And we kind of took a dual approach. We publish a lot of work and we do a lot of in-situ or lab work where we validate the persistence of our technology, our microbes and our consortia over time. We validate the shelf life. In the bottle, you know, we have a liquid microbial suspension. These are soil microbes that came from nature. There's four bacteria in this particular product, Mammoth P, and the shelf life's out 24 months but it's a real time experiment where it's taken 24 months to collect that data. We also 100% always make sure that any technology, any experiment that we do results in improved plant growth, development, health, yield metrics, because that's what really brings value to the farmer. And so the academic approach is very different than the market approach. We'd like to, We'd like to kind of marry the two, but if you have to pick one measure, you better pick the one that matters to your end customer. And that's how much it's going to add to their bottom line, the ROI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is, is Grossentia the, the company name and then Mammoth, the cannabis focused brand? Is that right? That's right. Okay. And what is the, the growth plan for, for Grossentia? Is it, is it to continue to offer more offerings in the cannabis industry? Uh, are you looking at expanding into hemp or what's next? Yeah, thanks. That, and both. You know, we are going, we're developing a family of functionally targeted microbial biostimulants, both in the nutrient delivery vertical and in the biocontrol integrated pest management vertical. We're coming out with several new products this year. And we're we're also continuing to engage and collect data in other crops. You know, we've gotten a small business innovation phase one and phase two research grant from the United States Department of Agriculture. And we continue to use those federal grant dollars uh, to support, reformulate our technology, 
to engage in precision tomato growers, both outdoor process and indoor uh, fresh tomatoes. We've engaged in a lot of trials in strawberries in universities and with Growers Direct. We understood through our discovery exercises early on that to, for high confidence of adoption, you really need two or three years worth of data to engage in these other high value crops and, and even more data in row crops. And so although we haven't focused as much on row crops, we have focused on those other high value specialty crops, including tomatoes, hops, and strawberries in particular, so we can engage those markets. And we do plan to engage those markets again. We think our technology is very effective and very efficacious and brings value across many different crops. And our number one job is to bring value to growers and bring nature to agriculture with our microbial solutions. And that's what we're planning on doing. And uh, how about raising money? How has that been for you? Or where are you at in, in that part of things? Yeah, yeah. So we're, we are VC funded. We have a seat. We have, we got a seed round to, to get our, to get our company out of the university and we finished the series A. And so we've done that with that. And we became revenue positive very quickly uh, within the first year of our company, easily the first six months of our company. And we've generated a lot of revenue that helps support our efforts. Again, our company structure is pretty interesting. A third of our company, we have about 60 people in the company. A third of our company is outside sales. A third of our company is in production, packaging, business administration, administration in general, here at HQ in Fort Collins, Colorado. And a third of our company is research and development. So now we have a team of PhD directors that are leading our, our microbial discovery and production efforts, research and development efforts. And that's about 20 people strong also. So all our revenue uh, gets reinvested into the company as we continue to reinvest in ourselves to come up with new uh, innovative technologies to solve different pain points for farmers, both again in the nutrient use efficiency space and in the integrated pest management space. Excellent. Well, Dr. Colin Bell, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, if somebody wants to follow up with you or the work you're doing, uh, what's one good place we can send them? For sure, you can go to mammothmicrobes.com, our Instagram, mammothmicrobes, my direct LinkedIn, Colin W. Bell on Instagram as well, social media, the websites. We're, we're very easy to find. If you type in mammoth microbes, if you type in Colin Bell soil, you're going to find us all over Google. Yeah, I've heard in the cannabis industry, you don't exist if you're not on Instagram. That's kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Colin. Really appreciate this. It's a lot of fun. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thanks so much to Colin Bell for being on the show. Really appreciated his insights and just learning a little bit more about this industry that I know very, very little about. Uh, but but as a result of that interview, know, know a little bit more. So perhaps more to come. If you know anybody in, in this cannabis space that would make for an excellent guest, hit me up. I'm on Twitter at Tim Hamrich, or you can always uh, send me an email, Tim at aggrad.com. Now, there is no five-minute farmer on the program here today. So if, if you were holding out for some direct-to-consumer cannabis, uh, not today, but maybe sometime in the future as, as laws might allow for such things. We are planning on bringing back this five-minute farmer segment, although it may be in a slightly different form. So if you have any feedback from the ones we have done, we'd sure love to hear from you uh, using the same Twitter, Tim Hamrich, or email tim at aggrad.com. 
But thank you so much for those of you who stuck around to this point all the way through to the end. I really do appreciate the audience of the show. You are so entrepreneurial and intellectually curious, and you keep me motivated to keep digging deeper into what is going on in agriculture and what the future of agriculture might look like. We'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.